0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. Three segments this week, four guests. First up, the fantastic NBA broadcasting team of Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustock. They are the broadcast team for the Brooklyn Nets. And in my opinion, they are the best regional NBA broadcast team out there. So we have a really fun conversation with them. You can tell how great their chemistry is on this podcast and if you've ever listened to, or should say, if you've ever watched the net game, you already know that. After that is Jason Gay, the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And we discuss his recent piece, Mr. Craft and the Sports Owner God Complex. That is about why so many sports owners, particularly in the NFL, are afforded the Mr. Honorific that they get. And I think you'll find that conversation with Jason interesting. And then we finish up with Pete Abraham, the excellent uh, Boston Globe player. Boston Red Sox beat writer. Pete uh, talks about Nick Cafardo, the longtime beat writer who passed away last week, and how Nick Cafardo was instrumental in Pete Abraham being hired at the Globe. And the thing about Nick Cafardo was one of the few people in baseball, as Pete will tell you, who just essentially had no enemies. Everybody liked this guy, everybody respected this guy. And that's why the the, the loss was, I think, so painful throughout the sports media world and throughout New England. Um, Nick Cafardo really made a lasting impression on uh, everyone he met in that sport. So, again, starting off with Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustock, then Jason Gay, then Pete Abraham, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, as I said at the top where I gave their quick resume, Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustock are the broadcast team for the Nets, but they're not just the broadcast team for the Nets. Each has a distinguished solo career. Ian Eagle has been a broadcaster for CBS and the Yes Network for 25 years. You've seen his work all over the place. Uh, Tennis Channel, I think, too. Sarah Kustak has worked for Comcast Sportsnet Chicago. She's now the darling of Fox Sports. They have, I believe, never done a podcast together. So they have graciously taken their time to come on the sports media podcast and do a duo act, Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak, is it Kustak or Kustak? Why do I keep mispronouncing that, Sarah? But regardless, yeah. welcome. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> You're yeah, good.
1: Hey, Richard. However you say it, we're going to run. Yeah. It. Yeah. That's and and it's actually
0: it, it's actually
2: Eugle, Richard. If yeah. you could get that right.
0: <laughs> is it I? Is it Ian or Ian? I mean, here we go. Oh
2: uh, yeah. Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld many years ago was a guest on Fan when I first started out. He was a guest on Steve Summers. and this was such a huge moment in my life. I'm driving home after a shift, and I'm listening to the show, and he has Jerry on, and just out of nowhere, he says, is it Ian? Is it Ian? What is it already? And it it was this moment for me that I realized that i had broken through to my favorite comedian and uh, put me on the map that uh, I'm currently on.
0: Nice. Uh, all right, so, Sarah, this is the first time you and Ian and Ian have worked together, correct, uh, in terms of a podcast? You've never done oh, a podcast Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a trick question, Russ. No. Uh, yes, first podcast together with Bird.
0: All right, and Ian, is. am I accurate right. in, in the fact that... Uh, because Sarah has joined you on the Nets broadcast, that has sort of revitalized your career. It was sort of on the downside <laughs> yeah. a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was I was downtrodden. Uh, I was I was struggling, and this has rejuvenated the career. Yeah, but we here's the reality. We knew each other before we started doing the play-by-play and analyst work together because she had joined on at Yes Network. So this wasn't just an... Out of left field, higher. This had been building through the years, so the friendship was already there before we we ever actually put the headset on and, and sat courtside.
0: All right, I, well, I'm going to get serious. I know it's hard for on a podcast with you two, but I'm going to try to do it. In my opinion, this is going to be the probably the only part of the podcast where I like sort of go overtly kiss your asses. Um, to me, you are the best uh, NBA broadcasting team that exists regionally. This is a very subjective viewpoint but that is my viewpoint and one of the things i appreciate is that i feel like when i watch the nets i feel like i'm getting a national broadcast even though it's um it's a uh it's a regional broadcast so a couple things off that and we'll start with you why why does it work between you two on air just uh, it's an open-ended question
2: well i think it does start with genuine friendship and caring about one another trusting one another and I would say that about any broadcast crew. If you don't have that, then something's going to be missing in your on air presentation. When you try to connect with an audience and you try to resonate with an audience, uh, people can figure it out. It, it, it doesn't take much. If it's you talk, I talk, you talk, I talk, that's not going to be pleasing to the ear. If it's shared conversation, then I think that's when you put people in a comfortable position as far as uh, individually with with me and Sarah uh that's all real Uh, that's not something that we have to get pumped up for when the red light goes on it's just a continuation of our relationship off the air if we were on the bus heading to the game we're having conversations that could pop up on the air Uh, that's to me uh, the best when, when the lines blur and people can get a real feel for the dynamic that you have. And I think for Sarah and, and for, for me, that was easy. That was, that was not a challenge to, to bring that to the airwaves.
0: Sarah, same question.
1: I, I just think um, if you look and it's well-documented, the, the list of partners that Ian Eagle has worked with, and whether that's with the Yes Network, whether that's with CBS, Turner, you name it, everyone succeeds when they are sitting next to Ian. And, and there's a reason for that, because he understands the strengths of his partner, he makes them feel comfortable, and he is by far the most prepared person I have ever worked with. Um, so with that being said, I think the dynamic between the two of us and, and Bird I mean, he is one of my dearest friends. And so that, that's something that you can't manufacture. That's something you can't fake. That comes off on the air. And I think viewers love that. They appreciate that. But I also think it's just knowing strength. I am not funny. And Richard, we will find this in the podcast. Like staying in your lane, knowing your strength, and being yourself. And so. You know, in terms of how we complement one another, what we bring to the table, I always want Ian to feel like I know everything there is about the Brooklyn Nets, about the opponent, about the league. There's nothing that he can't throw at me that I will not be prepared for and researched for. And on the flip side of things, I know Bird knows absolutely everything there is to know inside and out about the teams, about the league, about whatever it is that we may be talking about. But, but I think it's just that, that trust, as I said, and the comfort level with one another, but, the, but there it, it circles back to, and I am continuing to try and improve and be my best. It goes back to the fact that there is not a person that has not thrived and flourished and has been at their very best when they're not working next to I. And I'm not saying that because he's my partner, because we're on this podcast. That is the absolute truth. And that's, um, the thing that makes him unique and distinguishes from any other play by play person. Is that he resonates with his partner, understands how to bring out their best, and, and does it in, in such a very easy,
0: natural, genuine way.
2: Sarah, your, your mic went out. Could you just repeat the whole thing
0: again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, by the way, as a, given you are the son of a comedian, when someone says I am not funny, that's usually a funny line, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a, it's a, a,
1: it is a I funny know, line. But I'm not. Do you listen, Richard. Do you listen to our broadcast.
2: That's not true. You are funny. You're funny in your I own spend, way, Sarah.
1: In my own way, but I I relish in the fact that I could spend seventy percent of our broadcast pressing the the cough button because I'm, I'm I'm keeled over in laughter and in tears. Um, but but that's in in Richard. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it it's so fun um, because we are our realist selves all the time.
0: Ian, um, you have worked, as Sarah noted, with—I mean, I, between all of your assignments—and I apologize for not uh, mentioning your uh, your your Turner. Uh, Uh, connection uh you know you the the number of color people you've worked with uh is in the hundreds what is um what's unique obviously outside of the fact obviously sarah is a woman and that is unique in the nba almost far not 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 so much unique anymore which is interesting about that sport very progressive but what what's unique about her in terms of stylistically approach how she sounds on the air given um you know, given just the hundreds of people you've worked with?
2: Well, there's a warmth to her off the air that shines through on the air. You can't fake that. You can't bullshit. That's real. That's who she is. So right out of the gate, when you say to someone, all right, uh, when you go on TV, just, just be you. And yet a lot of people can't seem to do that. The other part is she knows her stuff. So uh, while this might have been considered a nice story a year ago that she had gotten this job, if she didn't know her stuff, then the nice story fades to oblivion. You have to be prepared. You have to be passionate about the preparation. And Sarah goes the extra mile because it's not just knowing about the Nets. It's knowing about the league and their tendencies and talking to people and being communicative with everybody, uh, If she walks into a room, there's a different vibe in the room. To me, that's what differentiates people in this world. Are you happy to see them? And with Sarah, everybody's always happy to see her, but she also knows how to turn that into information that she can use based on uh, the uh, level of the relationship. If it's a staff member with an NBA team, if it's a player, if it's a fellow broadcaster... It's someone within the league. Uh, Sarah understands that relationships also can equate to information and information that we can use can make our broadcast better. The goal is to be informative and entertaining and especially on the local side where there seems to be that connection with the audience. They're tuning back in. Uh, they know the, the ins and outs of, Of the broadcasters and the people that uh, provide the coverage, game in and game out, there's a sense of familiarity. So you're not going to surprise anyone. You're not going to shock anyone, but you've got to keep it moving. And the thing with Sarah uh, from day one, that credibility never came into question. She knows what she's talking about. I don't care who the analyst is. At some point, if that's no longer true, that's when people start to tune out.
0: Sarah, uh, um, I'm gonna ask you some questions about Ian but before that, uh, and this will be the only time I bring this up because we talked about this on the podcast that we did. but one of the things that really has struck me, and I and feel free to weigh in at any point after Sarah talks on this one, is you know there was a lot of um, you got a lot of press when you were named the solo analyst of the Nets. But what's been pretty interesting uh, you know a year plus later is like that's not a story anymore. Like your gender, is gone. And that really not only speaks, I think, to you and your work, but it speaks to the fact that in the NBA, it's interesting. Like that's not really a story anymore. A woman being an analyst on a on a broadcast. Do you do you agree with that? And I know it's hard for you to sort of self analyze this, but you're a big reason why as we head forward, like that gender story is gone now, because of people like you and Doris Burke and and Stephanie Reddy, etc. Carol Lawson.
1: Yeah. and you said those names and I think that's a big part of it and and I know this just as well as all of those who we work with at Yes Network and our producer Frank DeGrate that that was the goal um the goal was to not make that the story and the goal was to make sure it was just about whether people enjoyed me as an analyst and felt like I was competent to fit that role but but more than anything Richard you said it like it's it's because of people like Doris Burke, like Ann Myers-Drysdale. Um, you, know, you mentioned Stephanie Reddy, the job Carol Lawson has done. Um, the, the list continues to go on. It also spans you know, other sports, as we see what Jessica Mendoza has does, done and, and Beth Moins and the likes of that. Um, I, I think the more people that are in those roles and are comp- competent in those roles, um, that starts to go away. And I think you may have asked me this. I know I've asked about it quite a bit when I first was moved into this position, if, if there's pressure in that role. And to me, I just had always looked at it as a responsibility, um, that if I did a good enough job that that didn't become the story, then those behind me and, and all the rest, just like those before me, had, had really paved the way to have these opportunities. Um, it, it wouldn't become such a unique thing. And uh, that's why I feel proud to cover the NBA, to work in the NBA, because it is a very progressive league that really pushes that forward
0: Sarah um, it's very clear that you and I and obviously are friends you said you call them one of your dear friends how uh, how I guess I would ask this can you have a good broadcast if you dislike your colleague or how important is it that you get along away from the mic in terms of whatever kind of on-air chemistry you have
1: I, I think in, in Ian could probably speak to this um, even greater than I can given the fact that he has had so many more partners and, and Um, the the quantity of of years he spent doing this. I certainly think you can have a great broadcast if you don't have um, necessarily a good relationship with the person you're working with. I think oftentimes, too, we're in positions that we're working with individuals that we don't know and we're with them for the first time, so you need to try and create that chemistry in a quick manner. Um, But I think it goes... it, It is magnified when you care about the person. It is magnified when you have a genuine chemistry. It's something, you know, anytime when viewers are, are watching, uh, whether it's a game or a television program, whatever it may be, they, they want to feel like they know you. They want to feel like they can relate to you. And I think anytime that you have two people that truly care about one another or are in it for one another and, and you have that type of immediate chemistry, it, it goes a long way in how people can truly enjoy the broadcast and the show that you're putting out.
0: Ian, the uh, the the, I was going to say the hatred that you and Bill Raftery have off the air is palpable, (laughs) but yet it works for it works for you on the air. Why is that, Ian?
2: Yeah, I I've been ridiculously fortunate to work with people that I have a real uh, respect for and an affectionate level that carries beyond the broadcast. But uh, there's no possible way in a list of 135 different partners that I've had over the the course of 25 years of doing this job, uh, there's no way that you're best friends with all of them. But the goal is to find common ground. And you've got to be malleable, I think, as as the play-by-play announcer. Uh, Your job is to make the team sound good. And then you have to realize that uh, not everybody does this the same way. Some partners want to talk everything through before you go on the air. Some partners don't want to talk it through and they want it to be fresh. As an example for, for me and Sarah, I got to tell you, we don't really talk a whole lot about what we're going to cover that night. And it's not something that we've ever sat down and, and spoken about saying, Hey, I don't, I don't like to, to discuss the, the topics that, that we're going to deal with. It's just organic in, in our relationship. We both know that we can go somewhere and the other person has their back. And that's ultimately what, what I'm looking for. I remember I got the, the Jets pre- and post-game job in 1993. So I was a young guy at WFAN Radio, and they tell me that my partner is going to be Freeman McNeil, who I grew up a huge fan of. And we're now going to do the first pre- and post-game for a Jets preseason game in the 1993 season. I've not met Freeman, literally. Did not meet him. He came in an hour before the show. We sat down. We chatted. I I asked him about his life, about his family. We talked a little bit of football. And I look up, and we're five minutes from air. And he had no experience doing this. So we get into the studio now. I put the headset on. He's sitting just to the right of me. We're now two minutes from air. And I look over to him, and I said, All good? you good to go? He said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good to go. And then he said, hey, don't screw me here. And I thought to myself, (laughs) oh, wow. Uh, The fact that he even pondered the possibility that I could make him look bad or that I could lead him down a road that would embarrass (laughs) him, that shows me that that's where his head is at. This is a guy that played, was a star at UCLA, was a star in the NFL, played in front of 75,000 fans. And here we are, just two guys in a studio. I have a microphone. He has a microphone. We're about to do a pregame on a preseason NFL broadcast. And he has a little bit of terror in him. And it, it stayed with me for all these years, for all these games that I've done, because I think ultimately, certainly people that have been successful in other avenues in their life, they don't want to be embarrassed. And he didn't want to be embarrassed. And um, that's that's always been with me to make sure my partner feels comfortable that we're going to be the best that we can be when the show starts and they're going to walk away feeling good about the experience and, and that I played a role in that in some way.
0: No, that's that's fa- that, thanks for that story. That's uh, that's fascinating. And uh, I
2: did not screw him, by
0: the way. Let's let's get that out there. It, <laughs> it was it was good. It worked out. Sarah. Um, The Nets are a much better team this year um, than they have been in the last couple of years. And I wonder, do you think the success of the Nets, has that had an impact on how you and I sound to those who are watching?
1: I would like to think that it's just more exciting for Nets fans when their team is winning. And, And for us who are around the organization. Uh, we have such great respect and deep love for the staff and these players. And it's just truly such a great group of not only, you know, in what they do and what their jobs are, but individuals as human beings. I think that there is, is a lot more excitement and I think people care about that. But the one thing that, that I have learned and I particularly have learned from Ian in the way he goes about his business and the way he goes about his preparation is that it, it doesn't matter what happens on the floor. We are going to have the best possible broadcast we can have. And I have said this story before, and I, I believe it applies to this Nets team or to this group or when they've struggled and had some lean seasons in these past few years. Um, he, he prepares for every single game like, it is the, like he's that 25-year-old doing the very first Nets game that he has ever done. And that goes whether the Nets are playing Memphis or in New Orleans or in L.A. against the Lakers. And so I, I think that's the approach that's always taken. And I think, you know, that is why I'm so thankful to be a part of this, you know, Nets broadcast on the YES Network. But that's the approach they have consistently taken year in, year out. Um, so while I do think we have some more fun with it because we are happy for the organization and viewers are happy to see their team winning, I, I do think they're, to a, a certain extent, it's just we're going to approach it the same way. And um, the expectations we have on the broadcast we put forth do not waver regardless of, of what's happening with the team's wins and losses. It's, it's about us making sure that we're always at our best.
0: By the way, Sarah, I meant to say, I know you do some uh, very, very popular podcasts like the Zach Lowe podcast, so thank you for slumming on this one. I meant to say that at the beginning of the... Uh, I and uh, no th- Ian, I, I, I know you just want publicity, so no thanks. Your, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Your... I, I am a publicity whore. It finally one, came out. One thing for you, Ian, um, in doing my research, let's call it very limited pub, uh, preparation for this podcast, um, I saw that you... Um, you said that Sarah intrinsically understands television or that she gets television. I was reading yep. an interview where you said that. So I wonder if you could just explain what what you meant by that.
2: Well, when you've carried out as many roles as she has, she didn't just plop into the analyst chair. Uh, she started at the lowest of levels. She was driving around talent for ESPN when she was at DePaul. So she got her foot in the door at the lowest level that you possibly can, getting one person from one place to another, and then that's it. That was your experience. But then eventually seeing some opportunities pop up in the Chicago area as a sideline reporter, as a host, as an interviewer. And I think when you see all sides of this business, now when you get into that chair with more responsibility and more eyeballs on you, you have a better understanding of of what it takes to do the job and do the job well, uh, working with others. And, and here's the thing about television. You've got to deliver in the moment. Uh, you, you don't get a second take, a third take, when there's a high-level pick and roll and you get one replay, look at it. You know you get nine seconds to make your point. So for Sarah, uh, this this was not something that, that was by happenstance. Everything she did in her career prepared her for the job that she's currently doing. And in my mind, uh, this is not the end. Uh, there will be more jobs and big jobs for Sarah based on her experience level and then based on the fact that uh, she, she's a star. She stands out at, at this job. And when we spoke, when she got the job, the only thing I said to her was, and, and literally, this is the only thing I said to her about, about the job. I said, look, I'm not going to give you a rundown on how I think you did every single game. A, it's not, my, it's not my job to do that, and I don't think that's what our relationship should be. I said, if something stands out to me, maybe I'll make a comment, and if it's something that's worthwhile to you, maybe it's helpful. I've made no comments. There have been no criticisms because she was such a natural at this and her work ethic is such that she's self-assessing every single game. Uh, None of us are a finished product that do this for a living. But if you're aware and you want to improve, there are areas that you can do it just by watching your stuff back and being your, your own hardest critic. But we don't have... 45 minute rap sessions after the game about how she uh, handled that situation in the second quarter. I don't I don't find that to be productive and I I don't think that's the way to do it
0: in my mind. Have uh, this is for both of you. Have either of you gotten on the other's nerves ever? No. I
1: probably have gotten on Burns' nerves but you never have not. not he he truly is is Always the, the sunshine and the glowing point and the thing that I get <laughs> most excited about going to where I know it sounds like drinking a lot of Kool-Aid here, but it's the truth. And, and, and Richard, my favorite, part, my very favorite part um, of, of doing games and when we're on the road is, I mentioned it, we, we're, we're bus, we're, we're, we sit next to each other on the bus on the way to the arena and it, it's, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of space. If Ian, for some reason, is off doing a NFL game or a TNT um, NBA game or a college game, um, I sit by myself. But when he's there, we sit together, and it is my favorite part of the day. And I laugh, and I get to hear stories, and I often ask Ian about his travels, and he's probably been in five different states and two different countries and called three different sports within the span of the last three days and um to me that's that's what's most special because it, it is it does start with our friendship and, and when you get to see one of your favorite people at work uh there's nothing better than that
0: uh ian you now work with someone uh, worth a hundred million dollars that's not sarah by the way that would be richard know
1: something ri- i don't know
2: Oh, wait! I, th- I thought you were talking about Spinarco. I'm sorry. Just, uh, yes. I was confused.
0: That would be Richard Jefferson. So, okay. Am I correct about this that occasionally you've had a three person booth this year?
2: Yes. Yeah. We've had how, it on, how, how on is a that, few occasions. How has
0: that been regarding the Iron Eagle Sarah dynamic uh, to bring in a, a third person, obviously, uh, you know, terrific player, great personality probably can be very successful at this, but yet, as you know, Ian, third person changes the dynamic for sure.
2: It does. It does. And what I found when, when Richard has stepped in and, and worked with us, it changes the dynamic, but not in a bad way. It just adds a little something different. And Richard is a really interesting person. If you weren't talking about broadcasting and you just asked me about Richard as a human being, I would tell you that he's really one of the more interesting people that I know. His... His life and his background and his experiences all come out and they've blended to this and they've synthesized in a way that he has a very unique perspective that he brings on the air and off the air, just how he views life. I think he's been a breath of fresh air with NBA coverage because he's so current, he knows Every single person in the league he's either played with them, played against them, hung out with them, partied with them, feuded with them. Uh, There's, there's just a lot of layers there with, with RJ. So uh, I think that it's been a, a really fun listen because it forces Sarah and it forces me into some other places that maybe we wouldn't normally go and either Sarah or, I can bring it back to the focus on the court, but it's fun to go to those places sometimes, uh, especially when you have a two-and-a-half-hour broadcast and there are pockets where uh, you you can riff a little bit, and that's what Richard brings. He's he's a riffer.
1: Hmm. RJ is funny. He is funny. I, I Richard, I told you I'm not funny. He is funny. He's been he has been tremendous and everything that, that I had said, but the thing that's impressed me most is his, his want and his desire to, to keep getting better and to keep getting coached. And I love doing the three man booth home because they get to be hear The knowledge that Richard brings, having been an NBA player um, as recently as last season. And of course, you know, the jokes and everything we, the fun that we could all have, but, Every time out, he wants to take off the headset and talk about what we just saw or point something out or have conversations about different things. And he is truly um, in it to make the broadcast great. And I think that's how we all feel, and we're all in it to make each other be better and look better, and he's he's just been such a pleasure. And I think his work ethic in, in caring about this broadcasting um venture that he is on he, he's been really special and i think that he has just been such a tremendous add um to our broadcast and just having him around to really change our perspective and how we look at different things all
0: right well we'll get some int- we'll, we'll try to do some fun stuff here uh for listeners all right sarah i'm starting with you who is the coach that gives up the most in production meetings and the coach who gives up the least
1: Is this around the league we're talking about?
0: Oh, yes, around the league. Not, Nets, not deep Nets oh, would coaches.
1: Have, I probably have not been in as many production meetings with coaches from around the league. I'm going to defer to Ian on this one. Um,
0: all, right, all right, Ian. You, you, Sarah has done a beautiful job of not putting <laughs> you on the spot.
1: I'm going with my
2: partner. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Well, that's being a good teammate. Uh, I would say
2: among the most insightful is uh, Eric Spolstra. I just think he has a great handle on things. He has a way of of putting things in terms that are usable on the air, and then he can go in-depth for the basketball mind. That's beyond my knowledge base, but for the analyst to understand and incorporate uh, any sit-downs that, that I've had with Eric, I, I feel like I walk out a little bit smarter. Brad Stevens is, is also an elite-level when it comes to that, uh, sitting down with him is uh, is one of those experiences that you understand why he got the jobs that he's gotten at such a young age. He's just so bright, and uh, he's got the ability to connect. And I know maybe it's not going the Celtics' way right now, but I would never bet against Brad Stevens. That guy's going to be successful in whatever it is he does.
1: I'll also say we deal... We deal with a lot of Eastern Conference um, teams often, and Nick Nurse, in his first year with Toronto, He's someone who I'm fascinated to see how things go for him, such a a pleasant individual, but also really thinks outside the box. And I think he's he's fearless in some ways. He's had a different path and journey to getting to this head coach position. So I think he's someone that's very open and willing to share a lot of information. He spent this off season. He met with Phil Jackson. He met with Joe Madden of the Cubs. He kind of, he, he really was looking for different ways to approach this team and the season and just the, the opportunity that he was given. And I'm, I'm curious to see everything that he does with that. Because I think he's a personality that's a little unlike some of those that we often see in the league.
0: Hmm. Uh, I, and anybody who's maybe a little more reserved with the, the information?
2: Uh, You know, I think Rick Carlisle is ridiculously smart, ridiculously successful, very interesting, very different guy. Uh, I would tell you that in a production meeting, he'll answer your question and he'll do it in a a pleasant way. But you better ask a question to elicit the response that you may need for for on-air tidbits. He's just not going to give it up. He's just not going to, he's not going to provide you with, with the, uh, the talking points that you need. So if you just open up with, Hey, how's, how's it going? How how do you like this team? It's not going to, it's not going to get it done. You better, you better come prepared. Uh, Rick, Rick is, is a, a unique guy. And, uh, you know, he's one that, uh, if, if you're not ready to go, it could be a very quick session, and if you are ready to go, you could be in there a while if you can speak his language.
0: All right, Ian. There are going to be some people listening to this who don't know about Sarah's uh, college basketball background. She played at DePaul, and she essentially she did? was she was yes, yeah, she's the Lynette Woodard <laughs> no. of DePaul. Basically. I
1: didn't
2: even know I played.
0: <laughs> I had no idea. This is great stuff. Yeah, she is. Uh, you know, she's the Tarazi of DePaul. Basically, the reason I'm praising her at this moment is because she—I have heard in NBA circles that Sarah will occasionally like shoot before games or do stuff on the court that like kind of provokes a wow. What's what's the best thing you've seen her do on a basketball court uh, in terms of shooting, <laughs> horse, or something else?
2: Yeah, a lot of my experience is more video-based because that. That would require me to be at the basketball court. That, that's what you're alluding to. Uh, so that that doesn't happen, uh, you know. Sarah mentioned my preparation. How do you prepare? You prepare by just holding yourself in a hotel room and hunkering down and, and trying to find as much information and tidbits as possible. What I will tell you about Sarah, and I, I don't know how well known this is, but uh, she she likes to run and she likes to run very long distances. <laughs> And she will run distances that I don't believe are humanly possible, but I know she's not a liar. So she'll downplay it, but we'll be in Miami. I'll say, well, yeah, what'd you do today? (laughs) She ran to Orlando. Like, I I don't know how (laughs) this could happen, but she goes places. She'll like point, we'll drive. We'll drive 20 minutes away, and she'll say, like, oh, yeah, I was here this morning running. I go, what? That's 26 miles. She runs marathons in the morning. It makes, it makes no sense to me. Uh, I get double bacon in the morning. It's a very different experience that, that we have. She's, she's, a, she's a very dedicated athlete still to this day, and she also is very competitive. She, she's coming across very nice in this interview, and she's very nice but she also has another side to her personality where she wants to beat your ass.
0: <laughs> Sarah, who is the, uh, in terms of the NBA broadcasters, who's, who, who, who is the best shooter among current NBA working broadcasters, excluding yourself?
1: Oh, okay. Good, good caveat. Um, wow, that's a great question. I'm going to instantly... My my first instinct is to go with Carol Lawson. Um, mm, I also yeah, feel like yeah. she may be the most current player to still be shooting. Now, now you got me going through the list of
0: doesn't uh, doesn't Scalabrini play in the big three?
1: Oh, uh, no, Scalabrini. Oh, he's he's probably like twelfth or thirteenth on the list. <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even sure he, he makes the top half. <laughs> Uh, we love scal. We love scal. Richard, Richard is going to be upset. RJ would be upset if I did if I didn't note this to him. Uh, this is a great question.
0: I'll let you think about this, Sarah, for a little bit as we're. Uh,
1: you got me um, thinking as, about like, can Marcus Johnson probably feels like he could still shoot? I'm going to tell you right like now that,
2: that Eddie Johnson would be offended if you don't mention him.
0: Oh yeah, that's okay. True.
2: We'll give
1: yeah, we'll we'll give Eddie good job. Good what job, about uh,
0: Chauncey Billups?
1: Oh yeah. Oh, we're bringing in everyone? Yeah. Oh then if Chauncey's Chauncey's a factor, I'm gonna start making my list. This is a good question, Richard.
0: All right. This is a f- I, it's, I, it's, think, it's, I
1: think the better way to figure out the answer to this is if we could somehow create a tournament, like a shooting tournament.
0: Proceeds like go to Sorry. charity, That's
1: good. get everyone get get everyone on board.
0: Yeah, Sarah. Feel free to use this on the Zach Lowe podcast. Uh, that's fine. Um,
1: <laughs> I'll bring it up like it's my own idea.
0: We'll finish up with um, we'll finish up with this this uh, and this is a basketball one. The Nets are like a total fascinating team to me, Sarah. They're like uh, I've seen them uh, every time they've played the Raptors. Given I live here in Toronto now, and they play hard every game, at least from what I've seen, both on uh, watching them on League Pass and. And watching them against the Raps. Uh, why have they been so good this year? What what has been the turnaround in the in the last 12 months?
1: To me, it's their continuity. Um, they have always played hard. They have always been a group that's bought in to the concept and to the idea that Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson has put forth about bigger than themselves. So they're playing for the collective group, but I think every one of these players, they spent all summer in Brooklyn. So when you look at guys like that and and you can go down the entire roster, Spencer, Denwood, D'Angelo Russell, Joe Harris, every single player took a significant jump skill-wise, talent-wise from where they were at. Um, credit to Kenny Atkinson and his coaching staff for identifying and, and working with these players of looking at, okay, what exactly do you need to add to your game? How can you add certain elements to your game um, that will improve the team collectively? Kenny Atkinson adds a lot of wrinkles, nuances to what they've done offensively because of the personnel and because of the strengths he knows that he has in his lineup and his roster. Um, huge addition in Ed Davis. Um, Jared Dudley making a major impact. There's been a handful of players that have just played a significant role in bringing that veteran presence and understanding and production on the floor. Um, but I think more than anything, and, and I could add to all of this, I, I think they just, they've had such a, a beautiful chemistry about them, a, a want for one another to succeed. There is no egos, there's no selfishness and that's something that's very special. I don't think you always get that perfect fit amongst rosters and amongst players who, in many ways, are competing with one another for playing time. And they figure that out. And there's just um, there's been a, a really special belief and confidence in what they can do, what they want to do. And I think we're we're seeing all of that uh, come to fruition.
0: Ian, as you uh, as you expand on that, um, I do want you to uh, um, weigh in if you could on what do you think the Nets' prospects are of landing a um, a big-ticket free agent, especially given now that things seem to be heading on the upswing for them?
2: Yeah, you know, obviously the the goal in the NBA is to litter your team with stars and then take your crack at the best that the NBA has to offer. And I understand that's the philosophy. Uh, that's probably the way you have to do it to win championships. But just looking at this Nets team, what What has struck me is that on their roster, they have one player, one player that was supposed to be a bona fide star when he got to the NBA. That's D'Angelo Russell. He was taken second overall in the 2015 draft. The next highest drafted player on the team is Ed Davis, who was 13th overall in the 2010 draft. Then you drop down to guys that went in the 20s mostly, uh, Karis LaVerd, and Damari Carroll and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and Jared Allen, then you've got a bunch of second-round picks in there as well or undrafted free agents. So this team has made its mark with a bunch of players that always had something to prove. None of them were told coming out of college, oh, you're going to be a Hall of Famer. You're going to be a star. You're going to be an all-star. So that's been part of their philosophy is finding those diamonds in the rough and then putting them together into this collective unit. That's why uh, when you say, and and it's reasonable to say it, they've got to go out and get a star. They've got this money. They've got to find that big time player. I think the prospects are much better than they've ever been because the results speak for themselves. You want to... Get better as an NBA player, you want to improve your skills, you want good coaching, you want a good environment, the Nets are gonna provide that. Practice facility, state of the art, coaching staff actually cares about their players, cares about their well-being. Front office cares about their families and their extended families. So all of that is now out there. Agents know it, other players know it. Now the best part is that they are actually winning. So you can see the fruits of your labor. I can't tell you if any of these big stars are going to come and play for the Nets. I'm not sure they know right now. There's so much season left and so many machinations that'll take place during the off season. I do know that the Nets have set themselves up in a way that I'm not sure many people could have predicted three years ago because Mm -hmm. there's just a different persona that this team has around the NBA.
0: Uh, Sarah, one thing that is, um, is interesting to me, just in terms of your broadcasting career. Is I've noticed um, over the last couple of months, you've um, you've branched out to do different stuff. You're doing. I've seen you do Fox's uh, Fox Sports One's morning show, First Things First, which is a uh, you know conversation slash debate show, and you know we've seen you in some places that um, that we haven't seen you before. Uh, is that of interest to you to expand uh, away from the traditional analyst role or are these kind of just interesting one-offs that you've enjoyed doing and you take the opportunity to do them when they come? Same with obviously NFL sideline reporting work for Fox sports.
1: My passion is being an analyst. In um, that's my primary focus. And, and I think it'll continue to be that the place I want to be. That's what I love most. That's where I feel like I'm, I'm um, you know, most excited as I continue to look forward. But I think in any opportunity that you have to grow, to be outside your comfort zone, to do something a little different than what it is you may do on a daily basis, only helps and it only adds, you, what you're doing, it opens your eyes and allows you to look at things from a different perspective. Um, I think in terms of like the First Things First show, for example, it, it's given me an even greater opportunity to talk, to articulate about, you know, what I see in other teams, talk more about the teams around the league. Um, I'm a huge NFL fan, so, you know, an opportunity to be sidelined for some of those games has been great. So, yeah, Richard, I, I think, you know, it. bottom line, I love being an analyst, and that's exactly where I want to be and what I want to be doing, but um, I, I do enjoy any opportunity I have within television to continue growing.
0: Okay, last one for you, Ian. Given Sarah's obvious rising star, given the fact that she's, you know, respectfully I say to you, has a number of years on you on the youth side. Have you and your agent thought about maybe tying your individual future to Sarah's future, Ian, to, so that you can continue in this uh, in this broadcasting industry? Yes. It's a very simple
2: answer. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm with team Kustak. Wherever team Kustak goes, I, I just, I just want to be on the team. That's it. I don't care what the role is. I just want to be on the That is not a team. smart that's, decision. That's my goal.
1: Richard, you, you know, I... I just, I just ride Iron's coattails. I just ride Iron's coattails. My bro- we went back to Chicago to play the bulls Um and so my, my brother has five kids, and it's uh, him and his wife. And so there's a lot going on. He said, oh, I'm de- I'll definitely coming to the game. I'll definitely be at the game. I'm bringing the boys. I thought they were excited to see me. All they wanted to do was see Ions. It's, it's everywhere we go. It's, it's all about Ian Eagle. When we play, um, You know we have former players that we see, and if Ian's off doing a CBS game or a Turner game, whether it's Brooke Lopez or Vince Carter or Jason, make sure you tell, make sure you tell Ian. Make sure you tell Ian I say hi. Make sure you say hi to Ian. So He, he, is, truly, um, he is truly a legend among legends to, to not only us in the broadcast world, but players to coaches to everyone.
0: Well, Sarah, you know, for so long, and Ian knows this, Ian was essentially the answer to who's the most underrated broadcaster out there. But he was underrated for so long that uh, sadly he became overrated. And I feel like now uh, he's yeah. trying to figure out his identity. No, you know, yeah.
1: There's a, he can never be overrated. No, no I shot. I felt the backlight.
0: No <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sarah, when did you, before, I, I need to know this. This is just my own absurd personal uh, information. Before you met Ian. Had you seen the famous Super Bowl commercial his dad did, or did you see that after you met Iron?
1: I saw it after I met him. I saw it okay. after I met him. But uh, as a major factor why I even took, took the job in the first place was because I knew I would get to work. But way back when, when I came over as the sideline reporter for the Nets on Yes, I, I learned that I would have an opportunity to, to work with Ion Eagle, and that sold me. It was like done yes. and done.
0: So for anyone, uh, for anyone who does not know this, and I imagine many people who listen to this podcast will, though, uh, Ian's dad, uh, Jack Eagle, uh, was an actor and was very, very famous for being uh, Brother Dominic in one of the most famous Super Bowl commercials ever. So if you've never seen it, just Google Brother Dominic uh, Super Bowl. But um, when that commercial came out, I think 1975, Ian, am I right? I mean, like, you can't, given a three-channel universe, you cannot underestimate how many tens of millions of Americans saw that commercial. And then he went on to uh, I think do Fleischmann's Margarine and many, many other yeah, uh, Xerox and many other famous commercials. So uh, so Ian comes from uh, uh, acting royalty, I feel like I should say.
2: Yeah, Life, life Change from one commercial it was also the first commercial that used a religious figure. So right. it was breaking some barriers at the time and You know, life could have been very different as well. He then got offered uh, a number of TV shows. He went out to L.A., shot a bunch of pilots, a show called Return to Nempton with McLean Stevenson, uh, another show, the Lorenzo Music Show. Uh, These aired on network television. I remember as a young person sitting down and watching them and thinking to myself, all right, what happens if he gets the job or we moving to L.A.? What's going on? the the shows never got picked up they aired once on national tv they do a test and in the end it's probably better that it didn't because my life was shaped by being a new yorker and going to syracuse and and that's where life led me but uh, my father's life changed dramatically from from that one commercial and airing on the super bowl Uh, he ended up having a personal services contract with xerox where he toured the country for them up to 230 days a year in the monk outfit going from kinkos to corporate calls and uh, made a life for himself uh, financially and professionally, uh, not just based on uh, the fact that this character worked, but really based on him. He just had a way with people that uh, I just, I was blown away. I was blown away how he could so easily connect with anybody and do it from city to city to city and do it so flawlessly. It was it was a special talent that he had.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh,
1: Richard, do you know about Ian's appearance in Southpaw?
0: I do not know about
2: that, sir. Yeah. Bird? Yeah, I played reporter number two. It was if if you watch the movie Southpaw, first of all that would probably get me a, a four cent check. So <laughs> do that. And then secondly the, the obvious chemistry between me and Jake Gyllenhaal just, just burst through the screen. So uh, you should check that out. They did cut. There, there was a love scene with me and Rachel McAdams. They cut that. But uh, the, the rest of the movie is fine.
0: Yeah, I always wanted – Uh, you know, I I, I will say this. Uh, I, I always wanted a, a parent who either appeared on a Love Boat or Fantasy Island episode. It never happened, but I always thought that would have been uh, – um, oh, man. It's kind if of I kind amazing. The, and we should been of we...
2: deck with Julie, <laughs> uh, that would have oh,
0: fantastic. Life. <laughs> before, by the way, before we get out of here, I will mention that um, I and Son Noah, also a promising young broadcaster, uh, is he still a Syracuse student or did he graduate? He's closed, right?
2: He's close. Yeah, he graduates in May. That'll be four years at Syracuse University. My daughter Erin
0: is a sophomore
2: there, and uh, both are, are loving it. They really enjoy the weather. I think that's the lead story.
0: <laughs> I know. What is it with all the Syracuse, Sarah? What is it with the Syracuse uh, broadcasters and like their kids? They, 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 it's like a cult. They all have to go to the school.
1: I don't understand that, but I do know that Ian's kids. Noah and Aaron are my favorite people on the planet and my career path hopefully is to work with Ian as long as he wants to broadcast and then just jump back. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the person hanging on the tails of Noah in his broadcasting (laughs) career. And Aaron is, Aaron's a total fashionista. I have to say between her and Elisa, Ian's wife, I need to check with them about all of my clothes, what I should be wearing, how I should fix my hair. So I'm set, Richard. It's it's not just about birds. The whole the whole family keeps me in check.
0: You, should, you you're you're like a uh you're you're a designated eagle. I'm waiting Sarah. for them to, to adopt. You me. might have to you, you might have to get the hyphen at the end of the name. Kustak, Kustak- hyphen Eagle. All right, listen, you <laughs> have work to do, both of you. You're 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 covering a, a very important NBA team. Uh, Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak are the broadcast team for the Brooklyn Nets. You can also obviously see them. In Ian's case on CBS, he does games with Dan Fouts, the Yes Network, obviously I mentioned, Tennis Channel. Ian, are you doing stuff for Turner right now, or, or is that in the past?
2: No, no, no. Uh, still still involved with Turner, and come playoff time, obviously, uh, we'll be part of the mix again. Great people. Uh, this is a specifically good time for Turner and CBS because of the NCAA tournament coming up. That's correct. And that relationship has, has been uh, really strong and excited. Excited to be a part of it again. It'll be 22 NCAA tournaments this year wow. for me.
0: Awesome. Congratulations on that. And Sarah, obviously, for the Yes Network, uh, now working for Fox Sports, doing NFL sideline, and uh, you know debating uh, who's better between uh, Scottie Pippen and, uh, uh, I don't know, Lonzo Ball, whatever's going on in Fox Sports 1 these days. Um, Sarah? Ian, anything you want to add before uh, before I get you out of here? You're, you're a delightful, delightful on air broadcasting couple. This has been everything I thought it would be. <laughs> well, thank right.
1: well, thank you for thank you for having us, Richard and Sarah. Let me just say it. this,
0: Sarah. Let me just say this. You have been so nice to Lou Pellegrino who produces this podcast you become friends he, he speaks so highly of you the way you speak of Ian Eagle is the way Lou Pellegrino speaks of you Sarah so you're you're, you're I, adore repu- Lou.
1: I, I originally agreed to come on this podcast because I somehow thought it was myself Ian and Lou um yes. yeah. so Richard it was a little little bit of a disappointment now Lou is, I will Lou is, say I, I will say this Ain, extraordinary. Extraordinary. I I, I, so I don't want him. I I don't want Sarah Sarah Sarah, to d-
0: Sarah, Sarah. don't don't screw me now there you go. <laughs> very good, though. Uh, I, will say, I will say this, Ian. It is true. Seriously, you talk to anybody in NBA circles about Sarah, and like basically everyone is like, Sarah Kustak's like the nicest person I've ever met. It is genuine. I, so I don't know if like this is all an, a work and behind the scenes she's a horrible person, but like, I have yet to meet anybody in NBA circles who doesn't just say great things about her. That is a, that's, that's yeah. a very cool thing.
2: No, she's, you, she's pulled sure. the wool over everybody's eyes. It's, yeah, uh, I agree. It's yeah. a sham. <laughs> right?
0: well, 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 I'm, a, well, Richard, I'm a cynic. I don't buy any of well, that. Well, Richard, I have to jump in one second because it stretches far beyond basketball because in another life I lived actually in Orland Park, Illinois, which is right down the block from Carl Sandburg High School. And all you heard about was this basketball player who was going to DePaul, and everyone knew who Sarah Kustak was when I lived in that wonderful town of Orland Park, Illinois. And that's where we started our friendship because I said, I have something that will probably blow your mind, and that's when I told her. I said, I used to live in this town, and she was like, oh, my God. And it's been, it's been friendship ever since, right, Sarah? Yeah,
1: ever since. Pops pops deep sandwiches.
0: That's right. That's right. <laughs> by, the, by the way, I think the player Lou is honestly referring to was Mark Aguirre, but it's a nice story anyway for, <laughs> uh, for, for yeah. Sarah. yeah. All right, listen, Sarah, Lou, Ian, thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Sarah clearly
2: likes guys with three-letter names, Richard, so
1: you're (laughs) out.
0: All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Sarah and and Lou Pellegrino as well for his cameo appearance. Uh, uh, Those guys are great, and uh, they're such a terrific uh, broadcasting team, and I wish them nothing but success. And now we will move over to Mr. Jason Gay of The Wall Street Journal. Okay, as I said at the top, Jason Gay is a sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal. He's also written for many other publications, Vogue, GQ, Rolling Stone. He is a frequent guest on uh, the uh, mega-popular Bill Simmons podcast, and he has come off that mountain to join us today on the very smaller sports media podcast. Jason, I think you're the first person I've ever had on for The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the sports really? media podcast. Yeah.
3: No Peggy, Peggy Noonan's never been on?
0: <laughs> no Wild no peggy nude yeah I, I, I might have a ban on some of your op-ed columnists to be very honest but uh, but you're uh you are welcome anytime all right so the reason um the reason I wanted you to have you on today is because you wrote a really interesting piece and this is something like uh that um i I've noticed for a long time and uh, yeah. my fellow, uh, teaching partner, Jane McManus, we talk about this a lot in our classes. And so you wrote a piece last week that really stood out. And the title of the piece is Mr. Kraft and the Sports Owner God Complex. And it's about the honorifics we so often see, particularly on television in the NFL, when owners yeah. are called Mr. Mr. Mara, mm-hmm. Mr. Rooney, mm-hmm. Mr. Kraft. Um, so let's sort of start from the beginning. What was your thought process behind writing this?
3: I mean, first of all, thank you for reading it in the first place, and I appreciate the kind word about it. It is, uh, you know, I was, I was looking for a way into this, you know, craft story. I mean, candidly, it's not a terribly nice story. You know, once you sort of get past the, you know, juvenile haha, you know, moment about craft getting caught here, it's obviously a much more sordid situation. Um, and, you know, so it's, as somebody who writes, somewhat humorously occasionally about sports, a topic like this, you know, there's a certain degree of difficulty. I wanted to write, however, about what I felt was an overarching situation here is is the way that we sort of venerate sports ownership. And you're exactly right. You know, we're sort of accustomed to this tradition in sports. And it's particularly acute in football, where we refer to owners as Mr., you know, and very occasionally Ms. Um, And I'm not talking about it as a term of respect, like a student calling you Mr. Deitch or, you know, somebody saying, you know, Mr. Johnson to their employer or something like that. I'm talking about kind of a servile, fawning, deferential quality to it. And I think anyone who follows sport um, can recognize it. You know, and it's as you said, it is particularly prevalent in the NFL. And I think it comes with this kind of, you know, reality distortion, you know, where we start to venerate these guys to the point that they can do no wrong. We sort of put them up as pillars in their communities. And this is not to say that they're not capable of doing very great things. And, you know, Bob Kraft has a very significant history of uh, philanthropy in New England and elsewhere. Um, But it is to say that we might put these people on a pedestal that they're not terribly deserving of. So
0: let's let's get into this a little bit, because it's really interesting to me. Uh, you have you have hit on something that I've always noticed. It is I wouldn't say it's NFL specific, but it is very heavy on the NFL. And here's my sort of thought behind this, and you can either counter it, agree with it, or expand sure. on it. I think part of it certainly has to do with kind of the patriarchy and the hierarchy of the NFL. The way the league has always been set up for as, certainly maybe as long as it existed is you know these owners like you said, are, are sort of venerated there. They've always been thought of as either like the grandfatherly figure who's, you know, yep. rounding up all these boys or, you know, yep. the Paul Brown hard edged, you know, we're going to make you a man kind of yep. thing. Then yep. you add to the fact that the NFL has always had the leverage on broadcasters because the product is so important. And I yep. think it leads to a veneration there where you're right. There's uh, the, many broadcasters are sort of over the top in their praising and sort of narrative for owners where it's never the same for um for players. So to me it sort of comes in the NFL from some kind of combination of patriarchy, hierarchy, maybe a little militarism and it and it and it sort of that's where we are in in modern and and you know plus the uh the suck up festival as well. So that's where we are in a in 2019 how do you see it what what it why do you think this exists in that sport
3: well i think there are a couple of things there that are worth developing a little bit more one is that um you're absolutely right that the media dynamic here plays a role you know the nfl is unquestionably for all the sort of crap that we give the nfl about you know its long term viability it is unquestionably the number one entertainment product in, you know, America and it commands a huge dollar. And to the point that the relationship between these broadcast networks and whatever digital players come into the future, they have to kind of, you know, get on bended knee to the NFL and do as the NFL wants and suggests, and they have to consistently prove themselves if they don't, and they don't show enough deference. Well, maybe they'll give a contract to the next person coming down the street. And so that creates some sort of inequity there, which is a little unusual when you consider what huge corporate behemoths these media companies are. Like the idea of, of that course. Comcast or ESPN Disney has to somehow submit to somebody is kind of comical when you think about it. But that's very much a reality. I mean, We've seen it with ESPN it being very public in the last couple of years since John Skipper's departure that you know, they want to reset the relationship with the NFL. And, and candidly, that means like making sure the NFL is happy. Um, which is an unusual thing to acknowledge in, a, in an organization that's part journalistic. But also, Richard, I can't help but sort of think that we're beating around the bush here a little bit. And, you know, I probably should have got into it a little bit more in my column, but there's a racial dynamic here, too. I mean, there I is agree. an element yeah, for sure. of... You know, when we talk about ownership and we talk about a league that is predominantly African-American and we talk about the history of how that relationship has been characterized, there is something undeniably, and LeBron James, you know, came right out and said it a couple months ago when he talked about the quote-unquote plantation mentality in the NFL. And people went berserk on LeBron for saying it, but that dynamic, that optic has been very clear for quite a long time.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think you have also hit on that. I don't think I, I think at least in terms of historically in the NFL, I don't think there's a question that uh, there's a racial element to it. Just if you if you even go back in the uh, and read the newspapers of the '50s and the '60s, you'll see uh, you won't even see the language coded. You'll just see the language sort of over the top racist. So I think yeah. I think its roots does lie in that as well. Do you see a parallel, Jason, at all? Between the honorifics, in, particularly in the NFL with owners, and the word coach in college. And I realize this is, gets a little bit yeah. trickier in that. Um, and again, I've written about this a little bit. And I have people, you know, a lot of people who I respect will come up and say, you know, I was raised um, in a family of coaches. I was always sort of yeah. taught to call somebody coach. It's a term of respect. Sure. Um, and I yeah. get that, you know, logically I get that. But the same thing if you if – you watch college football, particularly college football coverage, college basketball, the deification of coach in the language of broadcasters, and also writers as well. I feel there's a lot of parallels to the honorific you wrote about when it came to Kraft and the NFL owners. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. I mean, a little different in, of course, the
3: fact that the the college coach doesn't quote-unquote own the the, uh, the college team, but in effect, they do in some circumstances when you consider how powerful and how, in many instances, coaches built programs from the ground up. There's yeah. absolutely that kind of fealty that exists in college sports, particularly men's uh, basketball and, and college football. Um, the cult of the coach is a very real thing, and uh, it in the, in the same way that it creates that distortion field with uh, ownership, it does with coaches, too, where we, you know, again, using the word venerate a lot, but we sort of put these coaches on a pedestal. We venerate them. We make them seem like these larger-than-life figures who are just, you know, reshaping universities and thousands upon thousands upon lives. And then when they get caught with their hands in the cookie jar or worse, we act as if we are shocked, when the reality is that the life of the college coach has much more in common with selling used Mazdas than it does like being some sort of Greek philosopher or anything like that. (laughs) This is a cutthroat business where corners are cut uh, routinely, and it's not to say that everybody is doing it. I know people get very defensive about that, but it is definitely much more of the reality of the situation that is presented on, especially on TV.
0: Jason, at this point of our conversation, is there anything you want me to... uh would you like me to talk about Game of Thrones or Brian Curtis or Simmons? You wanna, I want to make it very comfortable for you with that other podcast. Uh, you know, are you, a, are you okay to keep going?
3: Self, no, at the risk of self-humiliation, and I, I'd, I'd probably be banned from the ringer from here on out. I have not seen Game of Thrones ever. Jason, I know what it is, on. and I know like what some of the characters are. Peter Dinklage Jay- lives in my neighborhood. I see him on the street, but I don't know Game of Thrones. I'm embarrassed. I'm probably going to be banned for life now.
0: Don't you live in Brooklyn, Jason? Isn't that sort of part I of the know, charter? I basically? know, I know.
3: Like it's like a requirement, right? It's like, yeah, I'm going to get booted from the neighborhood, too.
0: I know. Yeah, and you are, you know, you write about cycling. I'm sure you're eating uh, <laughs> or you're drinking organic coffee right now and having granola. So I feel like you, Kale no? juice, Richard. Kale juice. I'm out of the Brooklyn loop now that I'm in Toronto, Jason. I appreciate the <laughs>
3: updates. But Toronto's um, the new Brooklyn, right?
0: <laughs> it is what is, what is the new Brooklyn Is that, I, I always yeah. think of Brooklyn Brooklyn to me because of my uh, family will always be like uh, uh, Gabe Kaplan and that sign yeah. like welcome to Brooklyn you know sixth six biggest city in America or whatever that sign used to that be that
3: is my I mean you know, not to totally go off on a digression here but <laughs> one of my favorite parts about living in Brooklyn is when you encounter in other parts of the country people who are from Brooklyn if you meet some guy who was born and raised in Canarsie or Rockaway or Carroll Gardens where I live and they cannot stop laughing about the fact that Brooklyn is regarded as being this avatar of hipness. They just think that's <laughs> hilarious.
0: That's yeah, that's right. I used to live in Park Slope, and you're right. Uh, uh, and I actually would see uh, would see Howard Beck occasionally in a coffee yes. shop where you know yes. we could chat about the NBA. All right, a couple more things here, Jason. Yeah. Um, I um, the Wall Street Journal to me is a really interesting place to write sports. Uh, great readership, influential readership. Uh, but yet a place that, you know, makes its bones, um, both on financial coverage and news coverage. Uh, it strikes me, to correct me if I'm wrong here, that you really have a lot of freedom in terms of what you decide to write about as a, as a sports columnist. Is that true? And what is it like working for a place with that kind of influence, but yet is not a traditional sports place?
3: Yeah. Um, everything what you said is true. Uh, I do have a lot of freedom. It, it, candidly, it feels like cheating because, as you said, the reality is that most people, the vast, vast majority, are turning to the Wall Street Journal for financial and business coverage, stuff that they need to know, right? You know, they need to get ahead in whatever business they're in, and the Wall Street Journal is vital to whatever that is. The sports page is, you know, it's, it's, it's a digression. It's something that's off the news, you know. Once in a while, of course, you have something very major that is affecting the market and so on. And it can be something as funny as like Zion Williamson's shoe bursting, which actually was of great interest (laughs) to Wall Street the day after that happened. But for the vast majority, what we write is kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's the dessert. And we have the real benefit. Uh, and again, it feels like cheating because we get to coast off these tremendous journalists, these incredible reporters, these incredible analysts that work at the paper. You know, people like John Roo who wrote about the Theranos case, um, the yeah. guys at Rockfeld and Palazzo who have broken all the Michael Cohen stuff. And here we get to come in and we get to, to say fun things about the Patriots, about Duke basketball, about you know the Olympics and so on. And have this built-in readership, people who really care about the paper and have strong opinions with it. And Richard, you know, I know you've been in the business for a long time, as have I. I know what it's really like to work at a place where no one's reading it. You know, like that (laughs) feeling of like, I've worked at places where if someone wrote a letter to the editor, someone comes screaming through the newsroom going, we got a letter, we got a letter. And just to have the engagement that we have that people, like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, really, really given us about the paper every day is such a privilege. Um, And again, we don't have to, no one's building their fantasy football team off the Wall Street Journal sports section. So we can kind of come at it from a different angle than, you know, a paper that has to every day kind of hit all the proper notes.
0: Yeah, that's well said, uh, Jason. And uh, yeah, from working at Sports Illustrated and The Athletic, I always appreciate that people are reading because, like you, once upon yeah. a time, uh, I got paid ten dollars a story at the Metro Community News in Buffalo, and like you know, it was a miracle if you would get an if you would get a letter about your uh, <laughs> no, piece. It's yeah. incredible!
3: It's <laughs> incredible. You know, you hear people and and look, there's a lot of crap that you know that sports writers have to deal with, and 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 some horror stuff that sports writers have to deal with. Deal with, but feedback is a privilege. In most instances, just the idea that someone has taken a minute to look at what you've written and respond to it, even if it's not terribly positive, you know, that's what this thing is all about.
0: I agree with you, uh, and it is a privilege. Although I'm not going to lie, when someone just becomes a total ass, I, I there's nothing, or there are a few things I enjoy more than just hitting that block button on Twitter. It is, it literally for someone who's you know five ten or so, it it gives me the feeling of what uh, Theo Ratliff and Matumbo must have felt like in the NBA. So, it, it yeah, is,
3: I mean, you know, social is the weirdest <laughs> thing. You know, if you don't mind, on this story with Kraft, one thing that is funny, you know, the journal has what we call a quote unquote dynamic paywall. I don't know right. how the athletic paywall works, but, you know, the journal obviously wants people to subscribe to the paper to read the paper. But in instances, uh, for a lot of people who might not read the paper all the time, if you click on a link, you're probably going to be able to open the link and read it. So you get, you know, a taste of what the paper is all about. And maybe, hopefully, you'll become a subscriber. So, you know, it's not quite a leaky paywall but there's all kinds of I don't know how the hell they do it but it works this story there was a whole sort of like group of people who reacted to this story who hadn't read the story and which I think is just a very you know 2019 phenomenon of like now we just go nuts about a headline or even a social media tagline without ever giving even a minute's worth of consideration to the actual story itself. And we've become so obsessive about reacting to just even
0: optics in journalism now. That's a very new thing, I think. Two things, and then I'll let you go. One, any yeah. feedback from um, either, let's say, the NFL's PR arm, uh, any ownership types for the story that you wrote?
3: Um, I didn't hear it from the NFL specifically, but I can say that I heard from people in ownership, uh, current ownership and in past ownership who reacted and related to this. I mean, I think that there is obviously a um, public conversation that's happening about what happened with uh, Mr. Kraft, to use the uh, term of uh, <laughs> right. deification. Um, and then there is a uh, private conversation, uh, and there's probably a fair amount of schadenfreude, a little bit out there in the universe, um, which you know you can judge to be fair or unfair. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, but I do think that uh, the NFL is probably preoccupied at the moment because you know Robert Kraft, whatever you think about him or the Patriots or anything like that, is undeniably as influential an owner as exists in American sport right now. He just really is. He's the big kahuna. So uh, this is some kind of public comeuppance for him.
0: And then the last one, Jason, and this is just interesting to me, and I think it would probably be interesting to people at least who listen to this podcast, and that is one of the things that you do outside of sports is you've done a lot of celebrity profiles for places like Vogue, et cetera, but this is not just celebrity. I mean, this is the highest, sort of the most famous of the most famous, Jennifer Lawrence, Taylor Swift. Uh, those are two of your profiles. Um, when you are journalistically approaching this, Jason, um, it always strikes me, and I've done celebrity, many, many celebrity Q and As, but not many celebrity profiles. Is the approach um, to get people? Are there similarities in terms of like the same kind of handlers, uh, the the same idea that you'd like to try to get the celebrity in a place where? They feel the freedom to talk. So, in the athletic construct, that would be getting them away from the locker room and maybe to their home or a restaurant. Like, are there are there similarities in approaching this, or is writing about Hollywood types very very different? Let's say than writing about somebody who plays for uh, the Lakers or uh, you know the Patriots or the Bruins. I think it's a lot easier.
3: I mean, it's a lot easier for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons it's easier is that, you know, celebrities, movie stars, et cetera, have the privilege of not talking all the time. I mean, they don't have to, like, get in a locker room, you know, 82 times a year and have a microphone shoved in their face and, you know, have to dissect uh, their day of shooting on the set. I mean, they get to pick their spots. And so when they have, you know, deigned to submit to an interview to, Rolling Stone or Vanity Fair or anybody else, uh, um, they are kind of, I don't know, at least theoretically in the mood to talk. Um, so you're going to find them, hopefully, a little bit more open than you will on an athlete. And athletes are really, really tough. I mean, LeBron James, undeniably, is more famous than any celebrity, movie star, T V actor, anybody in America. I mean, can we acknowledge that? He is. Yes, I mean go anywhere in the world, LeBron James is a much more famous and there's probably, you know, a half dozen more names in the athletic world. And that has changed. I mean, I worked at G Q many, many moons ago and and, uh, you know, athletes were famous but they were there was like Michael Jordan Tiger Woods and there was kind of everybody else and now the dynamic has shifted because I think athletes are so public and so fluent on social media too which is a whole other element we can converse about that has changed the game so I think that it's you know the guys uh and women who are really really good uh experienced profilers of athletes I think of like Mina and I think of like Lee before he went to um, work for the Clippers, um, you know, their skill set was really kind of getting something uh, different than you can get from, you know, the typical locker room athlete environment because these guys have been asked everything you can imagine 50,000 times. And often the best way into them is to get them off topic, get them away from sports, get them away from the day to day thing, the mundanity of what they do because. You know, if you get anywhere close to their livelihood, they can go on off autopilot
0: really quickly. All right. Let me give the resume because it's long. And by the way, Jay, uh, if you want to catch Jason discussing uh, millennial media outre- outreach for Ocasio-Cortez and Beto O'Rourke, this is not the right podcast. That would be the, <laughs> the Brian Curtis, Bill Simmons podcast. But Jason Gay is a sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, the preeminent sports voice, I would say, for that publication. He is. Uh, he does features as well for uh, Vogue. Just Google him and you'll see him. He has profiled many, many uh, famous people. He's also the author of Little Victories, a sports writer's notes on winning at life. So if you are interested in reading more of his work, Google that. Go to Amazon. And uh, he's uh, one of the people in the business who's very skilled at writing humor, which is not easy to do. But he does it well, and we didn't even get into his FS1 career, uh, <laughs> which I think I We're wrote about back in the for day. Thirty for that, Richard. Yeah, that's
3: gonna that's, be yeah. That's, that's a that, multi-part series. That'll I think be huge. Dan worked, Flores has got a twenty-parter on that coming.
0: Worked with Regis Philbin and Katie Nolan. Whatever happened to Katie Nolan? I haven't seen her in a while. She, um, she's uh, she's she's the queen of the US Yes, she is queen of ESPN Plus, uh, but it's a good place to be because that is where the business is heading. Listen, Jason, you're a good man for doing this on um, short notice, and I really enjoyed that piece. And and it, that there's there is something very very interesting about the honorifics when it comes to sports, and I think you uh, I think you hit on it uh, uh, very well in your forum. Continued success, and uh, I'm sure we will uh, converse either on the interwebs or elsewhere. Thanks, uh, I appreciate so much for it. You got it, man. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right. My thanks to Jason for uh, for coming on, for slumming on this podcast, given that he's a big podcast star elsewhere. And now we turn to Pete Abraham, the lead Red Sox writer for the Boston Globe. Pete Abraham is the Boston Red Sox lead writer for the Boston Globe. If you are a uh, fan of baseball writing, I'm sure you have seen his work. And he comes on today to share some memories of Nick Fardo, uh, who uh, tragically passed away last week at the age of 62, the longtime Red Sox writer. And Nick Fardo was instrumental in Pete Abraham landing at the Globe. And that's why I wanted to have him on. Hey, Pete, I wish the circumstances were different, but, but thanks very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Richard. I appreciate it.
0: So, um, I want to start here, Pete, and that is um, in in I think in your piece as well as sort of discussing this online. Uh, Nick Afardo was really clearly instrumental in you landing at the Boston Globe, and I wonder if you could just share that with my audience how that happened.
4: Yeah, yeah, he was completely instrumental in it. I had, um, I'm from Massachusetts. So I, I grew up uh, in New Bedford, went to UMass, and I had long hoped to work for the Globe, and I had applied at different times. It never really happened, and uh, I ended up working in New York. I covered the Mets and then the Yankees for the Journal News and White Plains. and uh, was very happy there. They, they treated me well. And I thought, well, this isn't a bad plan B. Uh, you know, I'll live in New York and cover the Yankees and uh, so much for the globe. And our paper started doing uh, a lot more content online. This was back in uh, 2006 when that was kind of new. And Nick took notice of it. And when I would see him, and you, when you cover the Yankees, you see the Red Sox writers all the time, uh, you know, 19 times a year. And you know, postseason and things like that. And Nick was always complimentary of what I was doing, and I appreciated that. And, you know, he was a guy, you know, established national baseball writer, so to have him say nice things uh, was was really great. And right around the end of the 2009 season, in that summer, he, uh, he came up to me and said, hey, if the Globe's looking to hire somebody, we're looking to expand our online presence, I, I think you'd be a great fit. And I, I kind of laughed it off because I had applied there before and nothing. I didn't, I didn't even get an interview. So I, I thought, you know, there's very little chance of that happening. But Nick had, had talked to Joe Sullivan, who was a sports editor at the time, and talked about what I was doing. And so I went up to Boston and, and interviewed with Joe Sullivan before the uh, Red sox Yankee Series. And that kind of led to me getting the job uh, with more or less at the end of the season. I started at the Globe right before the playoffs started. And from then... Until last week, I, I pretty much worked every day with Nick. We uh, we went on the road for almost every game every season. Uh, shared a condo in spring training every year in Fort Myers, and he became uh, you know a great mentor, a great friend, uh, somebody I would, I ran every story I did by and uh, worked closely together with you know on breaking news and on features on almost everything. And uh, it was just such a shock what happened because it was completely unexpected. Uh, Nick was. Had no health issues at all. I, you know, there certainly wasn't any sign of anything coming, and to have what happened happen it, it's just really kind of cast the pall in the beginning of the
0: season. Yeah, I mean it was awful to read about. And so, Pete, from what I understand, it li- he literally just sort of felt ill at the ballpark, and um, and Red Sox medical staffers tried to tried to help, tried to revive, and brought him to the hospital, and he passed away there. No, no, no other sort of sign before that, just sort of like... No,
4: the- the, you know, it's funny. He, uh, he, he had a day off, and he came to the park because he wanted to hear Alex Cor's media session, and that that was kind of typical of Nick. He, he liked being around the park. He liked being around the team. and just if there was something he could pick up that would help him, he wanted to do it. And he was walking back to his car and down the sidewalk in front of the clubhouse, and I was in the clubhouse at the time talking to Dusty Petroyer, and somebody said, Hey, Nick! Uh, Nick collapsed outside. So I ran outside, and uh, by the time I got there, uh, there was an EMT there who was already at the park because they had an open workout, and there were a lot of fans there. And a number of the Red Sox medical guys were there, and he was, they were attending to him. And within a few minutes, they had him in an ambulance and, and off to the hospital that was really only five minutes away. But they said, right. I guess, they, they, what we understand was it was an embolism, and, and there was really nothing that could have been done unless he was already at the hospital.
0: Ugh. Just awful, um, and yeah. um, and people who in the business know that his son Ben Cafardo is a uh, public relations executive at ESPN. Why, um, Pete? One of the things that really struck me about Nick was that so many people in baseball circles, from writers on um, writers who work beats in other cities, to Alex Cora, to Brian Cashman, to just people who are not necessarily connected to the Red Sox had such great things to say about the guy uh, in terms of his fairness, his work ethic. What was it about, like, you know, there, there have obviously been a lot of great baseball writers, but not every baseball writer engenders the kind of admiration, love, whatever it is that, that Nick Cafardo did. What, what was it? Why, or I should say maybe why was that? Why, why did so many people end up saying what they said about this guy?
4: You know, Richard, I can, I can honestly say this. I've, I've been covering baseball for 18 years, and there's not one person I know who doesn't have an enemy somewhere or another. You know, whether it's somebody else in the media, uh, somebody with a team he's had a disagreement with, there's always little conflicts that go on when people are trying to break news. Nick was, I think, the only person I knew and who, who didn't have an enemy. Who, who If something happened that he didn't like, uh, he would settle it very quickly. He, he wasn't the kind of person to hold any crudges. Uh, he's the kind of guy who would, if somebody else on our beat would break a story, he would see in the next day and say, "Hey, good job breaking that story," and, and that doesn't happen in baseball writing very often. And I thought the emotions that came out after he passed were very heartfelt. And the globe put together, instead of his Sunday note package on Sunday, we put together a page of, of tributes to Nick, and it was, I think, about 2,500 words. It could have been 6,000 words. There were so many people who wanted to add something, but we we picked the people we thought you know represented him best and who knew him well. And it was, uh, I've been getting emails every day, even now from people, you know, expressing their condolences from general managers, uh, people in ownership, scouts, uh, some former Red Sox players were calling me when they heard the news. And I don't think that's the kind of thing that would happen with, with everybody if something like this, you know, were to occur, sadly, but it's, it was kind of gratifying to hear how many people had nice things to say about it.
0: Yeah, it's well said, especially in a city like Boston. Um, you know, and I would argue the best sports town in America, but so passionate uh, people have an opinion on everything, including the broadcasters and writers. So that just really struck me that uh, um, it was just universal with uh, with Nick. Um, one last one, Pete. That and you are we're talking to uh Pete. He is in spring training right now. Actually, today he's in Dunedin. Red Sox and Jays are playing today. Your job, Pete, is so interesting to me in the passion that fans in your area have for the Red Sox is just extraordinary. It it's um it really is, I would say, a cultural institution. And so I I wanted to know how much pressure do you feel on a daily basis, both reporting on this cultural institution in addition to the just the normal pressures of being on an incredibly competitive beat. You know, it's not like you're just covering another sports team. You're you're covering something that has just so much meaning to so many people in New England.
4: Yeah, I, I always tell people with, with the Red Sox, there's basically 162 one-game seasons. Everybody's very invested in every game. And if they win, they're on their way to the World Series. And if they lose, they're on their way to disaster. And I also write for an audience that I'm pretty sure everybody's convinced that they could manage the Red Sox if they had to. That if, okay. if, you, if you gave them a uniform and had them stand in the dugout, they would know what to do. So every move is debated, every transaction is debated. Uh, the fans are knowledgeable about who the minor league players are, so it's. Uh, I think it's great because I know I have an audience, and that's something you know in the newspaper business is very valuable. And whether it's online or in print, uh, this, so I do some other things with Nessun and on the radio. I always know that there are people paying attention, and I really value that because I think it keeps you on your toes. And to write for an intelligent audience. You know you just can't mail it in. You know, there's days on this beat where there's a lot of travel and there's a lot of long days. But I always think, you know, the people who I'm going to write for really care about this team, so I
0: have to be sharp. Last one uh, for me is, has the winning, uh, not just last year in winning the World Series, but kind of the sustained winning that this franchise has had since, you know, whatever date you want to pick in the 2000s, uh, has that changed the beat at all? And if so, how has it changed it?
4: Well, you know, there's certainly expectations every year that this team never really has a chance to rebuild. And when they came through that, that bad stretch where they, they finished in last place three out of four years, there were a lot of changes with Dave Dombrowski coming in and Alex Cora coming in and entirely new coaching staff. So there's never really any complacency here because there's been so many changes. Uh, you know, Alex Cora is only in his second year. Dave Dombrowski's only been here four years. So it, it hasn't been the same people running the team for very long, at least in recent years. So I don't get the sense that there's a lot of, you know, winning is all hat and and this is what we do here. There seems to be kind of a constant drumbeat of, yeah, that's great they won the World Series, but can they repeat? Can they, you know, stay ahead of the Yankees who went out and got a great bullpen? Can they stay ahead of these other teams that are rebuilding? So I I don't ever really get a sense that people are just satisfied with what's happened. I think they're always looking ahead.
0: Uh, Pete, living in Toronto, if you can do me a favor and at least uh, put this put the Blue Jays franchise at least on pace for 2022 to be competitive. I'd appreciate that. So you see (laughs) Ross Atkins or Mark Shapiro, please let them know that that would be the, uh, that would be the date. Pete Abraham is the lead writer for the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Um, Has one of, I think like one of the most unique, interesting, I would also say pressure filled jobs that exist in the sports media today. Just given how, much passion there is for the red sox and it's not just boston it goes all throughout new england and pete knows that better than me uh pete thanks for coming on today to talk a little bit about nick Cafardo, and i'm sorry for uh your loss and the globe's loss he was obviously a really great guy and obviously a really great practitioner and uh and we'll be thinking about him and the people who were connected to him thanks so much today for joining us on the sports media podcast
4: yeah, I appreciate it. It was good to talk about Nick, and um, I'm glad people feel that way.
0: All right, back in the studio. Uh, my thanks to all guests, four guests today. It's a big one for us, but uh, but I thought four interesting and and very different segments. So Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak, Brooklyn Nets broadcasters, Jason Gay, the sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal, and Pete Abraham, the fine Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Globe. I thank all of them for their time. Uh, previous podcasts include uh, last week was uh, John Orant discussing a multitude of media stories before that uh, we had Mark Fainaruwada Shannon Spake and Jeff Gluck uh, Shannon Spake and Jeff Gluck very NASCAR oriented Before that Jim Miller and his massive F-bombs on the Adnan Virk firing love that episode very very passionate Jim was about Adnan Virk who let's quite frankly be honest was absolutely over by ESPN which is remarkably inconsistent with their discipline and then just go down the list if you like this kind of stuff from Kevin Arnold, Kevin Arnold, <laughs> Kevin Arnold was in the Wonder Years. Kevin Harlan, Laura Rutledge, uh, Bruce Feldman, Tom Verducci, Rebecca Lobo, Kate Abdo, Rachel Nichols, Jamel Hill, Renee Young. Uh, just check out the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page, and you will see all these conversations. And please, uh, if you like this, give us a give us a good rating and uh, and a review. That's how this thing will stick around for Cadence Thirteen. All right, Lou Pellegrino did a lot on this podcast today, so I really appreciate his time and work. Thanks to Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.